This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello again, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. And today is our seventh episode, episode number seven. For episode seven, we are going to be taking a look at United Airlines Flight 811 that took off from Honolulu, Hawaii on February 24th, 1989, en route to Auckland, New Zealand. A little later, we'll be talking with Tom Van Beveren, who is a passenger on board United 811. Thanks to all of you out there that have been reaching out to us on Twitter. We are on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. Again, our Twitter handle is Plane Crash Pod. And we greatly appreciate the recent reviews we've been getting on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. If you have a moment and can give us a rating or review, we'd love you for it. We read all the reviews, and we've already got a lot of great suggestions from some of you. When we get a new review or recommendation, it always makes us want to make another episode. So if you want more episodes, leave more reviews. So, why a plane crash podcast? Well, recently I went on a trip to Europe, and I was on nine different flights during that trip. And each flight that I was on, I found that I was way too nervous. One fellow passenger would be reading a book, a kid next to me would be playing a game on an iPad, and I'd be there just gripping the armrests, having this lonely near-death experience. So I figured the more I exposed myself to this thing that I'm afraid of and tried to learn a little bit more about the world of aviation, that this fear might go away. One thing that's helped me out is to realize how safe air travel is today. And why is it safe today? Because of all the plane accidents of the past. With each plane accident, we learn another weakness in the system, and we build planes better, or we train pilots to tackle that situation we might not have thought of had it not been for that particular crash. We realize that each accident we discuss is a tragedy, and we don't want to be insensitive to anyone that's been affected by these accidents. We just see plane crashes as historical events, and we find them interesting and like to discuss how they contributed to making air travel as safe as it is today. So let's get started on United Flight 811. United Flight 811 was a scheduled flight departing Honolulu, Hawaii, en route to Auckland, New Zealand, early in the morning of February 24th, 1989. 
The plane arrived in Honolulu from Los Angeles, and this flight was scheduled to continue on from Honolulu, stopping in Auckland and eventually continuing to Sydney, Australia. The plane was a 747-122. It was built and delivered to United Airlines in November of 1970. The plane had over 15,000 total flights under its belt for a total of 58,814 flight hours. So in 1989, this 747 is almost 20 years old. It's been used heavily over the better part of two decades. It's good to keep in mind that this is February 1989. Just two months earlier, in December of 88, Pan Am Flight 103 was destroyed by a bomb over Lockerbie, Scotland. So everybody in the world of aviation has recently been exposed to images and the story of that flight. So a bomb on a plane and the Pan Am Lockerbie flight is fresh in everybody's mind. The captain for United Flight 811 was 59-year-old David Cronin. He had been hired by United in December of 1954, so he had been flying for United Airlines for over 34 years. He had 28,000 flight hours, over 1,600 hours flying 747s. Flight 811 was supposed to be his second-to-last flight before retirement, because he was about to turn 60 years old, and the FAA enforced a mandatory retirement for pilots once they hit, once they hit the age of 60. The first officer for United Flight 811 was 48-year-old Gregory Slater. He was hired by United in June 1964, so he's been with the company around 25 years come 1989. Slater had around 14,500 flight hours, 300 on 747s. The flight engineer was 46-year-old Randall Thomas. He had about 20,000 flight hours, 1,200 hours on 747s as a second officer. United Flight 811 had 337 passengers, 15 attendants, the captain, the first officer, a flight engineer for a total crew of 18, and total combined passengers and crew of 355. So the plane pulls back from gate 10 at Honolulu International at 1.33 a.m., three minutes behind scheduled departure, and takes off from the runway 19 minutes later at 1.52 a.m. local time in Honolulu. It's a normal takeoff, the plane's climbing and gaining altitude, and the guys in the cockpit notice that there's thunderstorms on the radar. They can visually see through the cockpit window these storms, so they request permission from air traffic control to change course. They want to turn left and go around these thunderstorm clouds. Air traffic control gives them clearance, and they turn left. The captain leaves the seatbelt side on because he's anticipating some sort of turbulence. 17 minutes into the flight, the plane is passing between 22,000 and 23,000 feet, and people on the plane hear a thump. A second and a half after this thump, there's a massive explosion on the front right side of the plane. An explosive decompression has taken place, and 10 seats, seats G and H from rows 8 through 12 in the business class section, are sucked out of the plane along with eight passengers occupying those 10 seats. Two of the seats were empty. Another passenger seated at 9F was thrown out of the plane as well. A flight attendant was seriously injured as she clung to a seat leg, struggling to stay in the plane before passengers came to her aid. Another flight attendant hugged the railing of a stairway to avoid being sucked out of the plane. So the plane's flying at 22,000 feet now with a massive 10-foot by 40-foot hole in the right side of the plane. On the CVR recording at the time of the explosion, Captain Cronin exclaims, What the hell was that? 
First officer Slater says, I don't know. Looks like we lost the number three engine and we're descending rapidly. So this explosive decompression has occurred on the plane and suddenly nobody can breathe. Usually when an event like this occurs, oxygen masks drop from the ceiling and everybody straps on their mask. But the explosion took place exactly where the oxygen supply is stored. So the oxygen went out the window. In the cockpit, they throw on their masks and find no oxygen. Passengers are being suffocated. It feels like they've got the wind knocked out of them, like somebody kicked them in the stomach. Captain Cronin calls for an emergency descent, and the plane drops down quickly through 15,000 feet and on to 10,000 feet, so everybody on the plane can breathe. They're 75 miles south of Honolulu now, and they pull a 180-degree left turn to go back to the airport. The damaged number three engine is causing a strong vibration through the plane. It's not operating, so the captain shuts it down, which kills the vibration. All three men in the cockpit at this time still don't know what's happened to the plane. They just know the plane's decompressed, number three engine isn't working. They know they're heading back to Honolulu, but they're expecting to fly to New Zealand, which was eight hours away. So they have eight hours worth of fuel on the plane, which makes the plane weigh 700,000 pounds. To compound these problems, the number four engine's on fire. So they have a massive hole in the plane, they can't breathe, the number three engine doesn't work at all, and the number four engine's on fire. The first officer says, we don't have full power on number four. He's referring to the number four engine, and the cockpit still doesn't realize that that engine's on fire. The flight engineer says, okay, I'm going downstairs to see what the hell's going on. Captain Cronin says, go ahead and run down and see what's happening. A few seconds pass, and the first officer says, you got a fire out there. Slater has noticed the fire on engine four, and they decide to shut down engine four. Now, only the number one and number two engines on the left side of the plane are working. So with only two working engines and weighing 700,000 pounds because of all the fuel they needed to get to New Zealand, they're slowly dropping in altitude. Now it's 7,000 feet. They can't climb. They can't hold altitude. They're slowly sinking towards the ocean. They immediately start dumping fuel at a rate of 5,000 pounds per minute, but they're still very heavy. The flight engineer, Randall Thomas, comes back to the cockpit from his search of the plane, and he says, the whole right side, the right side is gone from about a... One right back. It just opened. You're just looking outside. Looks like a bomb. Captain Cronin says to the tower at Honolulu, Okay, it looks like we got a bomb. Uh, that went off on the right side. Uh, the whole right side is gone. Air traffic control at Honolulu replies, You say you're missing the right side. Is that uh, the fuselage or the wing? First officer Slater replies, That's affirmative. We're missing a section of the right side of the airplane. Part of the fuselage is missing, and we've got uh, we've lost engine number three. We've got engine number four shut down because it appeared like we had a fire out there. We want all the medical equipment we can get and the uh, all the equipment we can get standing by. So as you just heard, the cockpit thinks a bomb exploded and blew a hole in the side of the plane and rendered the, the number three and number four engines inoperable. I'm sure Lockerbie was playing in their minds, and they thought this could be possibly an encore. They're at 7,000 feet, and they must have a million questions in their mind. Are we going to keep on sinking and have to ditch this plane in the ocean? How fast should we be going with our two engines? They know they're losing altitude, and thus they need to get to Honolulu quickly. But if they fly too fast, maybe the outside air will tear at the plane and rip the plane apart because of that massive hole on the right side. Maybe the bomb damaged the landing gear. Maybe the bomb damaged the rest of the fuselage, and it's just a matter of time before the structural integrity of the plane gives way. 
Maybe they think that when we do land, that's when we'll be too heavy, and then the plane might break apart then. They just have a million thoughts in their mind at this moment. So the three men in the cockpit have a quick exchange about how fast they should be going. They know they need to go fast enough to not stall and make it back to Honolulu, but slow enough to not rip the plane apart with this big hole on the right side. They decide to keep the speed at 240 knots, which is around 275 miles per hour. An emergency was declared at the airport, and the airport was closed to all traffic, so no planes are landing or taking off from Honolulu International. At 4,000 feet, the flight crew decides they want to go for the runway that's longest, because the plane's very heavy. They're only going to have reverse thrust on two of the engines, and the explosion damage flaps on the right wing. So they're going to have to land the plane going much faster than usual at 200 knots or 230 miles an hour. Flight 811 passes through a layer of clouds, and then the airport comes into view. At one point after the explosion and during the descent, the first officer says to the captain, What a hell of a thing to happen on your second to last month. Captain Cronin replies, No shit. Sorry for the profanity, but from reading the transcript of the CVR, all the language between the officers is very technical and professional. It's almost like you're reading a conversation between robots. I thought that exchange kind of showed that there was some humanity in the cockpit. These guys, you know, were dealing with a very stressful situation and uh, still trying to be as professional as possible. At 3,800 feet, they try the landing gear, and it comes down without an issue. Air traffic control asks for the number of souls on board, and the flight engineer, Randall Thomas, replies, I don't have the paperwork in front of me right now. We're busy up here, 200 and something. Thomas goes on to warn the captain to keep his speed above 200 knots. After a few nervous but composed minutes with solid and clear communication in the cockpit between the officers, the plane lands on runway 8L at Honolulu International and comes to a complete stop 7,000 feet after touchdown at 2.34 a.m. local time, or 42 minutes after taking off. In 45 seconds, the entire plane of 346 people evacuates down the emergency chutes. Everybody sure was in a rush to get off that plane. I imagine they think that the hole was caused by a bomb, and if there was one bomb, maybe there's a second bomb. So everybody's in a hurry to get off the plane. 346 people evacuate the plane in 45 seconds. There were nine fatalities and five serious injuries on United Flight 811. So what caused the explosive decompression that occurred on United Flight 811? Was it a bomb like the flight crew had originally thought? Well, it turns out that it wasn't a bomb. The NTSB investigation that followed the accident focused in on the plane's lower cargo door on the lower right side of the front of the plane. The cargo door was the source of the explosive decompression. Once the plane hit 22,000 feet, 17 minutes into the flight, the cargo door blew open, slammed upward into the fuselage with great force, and ripped a 10-foot by 40-foot hole in the right side of the plane. The big question of the investigation was, why did the cargo door open? Was it the result of human error? Did someone on the ground crew fail to properly close the door? Or was there a mechanical issue or design flaw with the cargo door? The cargo door was an outward hinging cargo door. This allowed for a little more storage space in the cargo hold, but when you use this outward hinging cargo door, you have to make sure that it's properly secured and locked that it's flush with the rest of the plane and the fuselage. As an airplane ascends into the sky, when the inside of the cabin pressurizes so passengers can breathe, there's a great pressure differential that occurs between the inside of the plane that's pressurized and the outside of the plane. 
If you have a plug door or a door that hinges inward, the pressure from the inside of the plane just pushes against that door, jams it against the door's door frame, which prevents the door from ever being opened at a high altitude. With the outward hinging door, you have to make sure it's locked and secured because it doesn't have that door frame to be pushed against. So Flight 811 has this outward hinging cargo door, and you close the door by first hooking up electricity to the door. Then you hit the cargo door external switch, which causes the door to close electrically. When the door reaches the door frame, 10 latch cams on the edge of the door rotate to seal the door to the door frame. So theoretically, your door is already closed. But just to be safe and make sure the door doesn't open, you pull the manual door lock handle, which moves additional locking sectors over the latch cams to make sure those cams can't rotate and the door couldn't open up. Additionally, when you pull the manual door lock handle, you kill electricity to the latch cams. So th three things are kind of built in to make this kind of a foolproof plan, supposedly. First, the door closes electrically. Then manually, the locking sectors move over the cams, which keep the cams from moving. Third, when you pull the manual door lock handle, the electricity is killed to the cam, so thus the door can't be opened, right? Well, there's some serious design flaws, unfortunately. First, the door is an outward hinging cargo door. Plug doors are a sure bet to never open mid-flight, thus they are a better design for cargo doors. Next, those locking sectors that move over the cams to prevent the door from opening, they're made of aluminum. Airlines and Boeing discovered that these aluminum locking sectors just get bent and distorted whenever the cams are electrically triggered. They don't really do anything or prevent the door from opening, Boeing issues a directive to double up these locking sectors, thinking twice the aluminum ought to do it, no? Wrong again. The locking sectors just get bent out of the way again whenever the cams are electrically triggered. Finally, they decide this aluminum stuff isn't cutting it, we're going to have to switch to steel. And they issue a directive to airlines to replace all the aluminum locking sectors with steel. This new modification only costs $2,000, but they give the airlines an 18 to 24 month window to change to the steel. This is in December of 1988, and three months later, this plane, Flight 811, that hasn't been updated yet with the steel locking sectors, has a cargo door malfunction, and its aluminum locking sectors are no match for the latch cams when they're electrically triggered. So how did the door open? A short circuit occurred in the 20-year-old frayed wiring of the cargo door, causing an uncommanded rotation of the cams, and thus the door opened. The aluminum locking sectors couldn't stop the cams from rotating. The NTSB issued a report in April 1990 initially blaming human error as the cause of the cargo door opening. They said there was no problem with the design of the cargo door. Then on September 26th and on October 1st, they found the two halves of the cargo door on the floor of the Pacific Ocean, located 14,000 feet below the ocean's surface. After analyzing these, they issued another accident report amending the findings from their first report. They concluded that improper wiring and inherent flaws in the cargo door's design were to blame for the accident. The parents of one of the passengers that died on Flight 811, Kevin and Susan Campbell from New Zealand, were heavily involved in the investigation of Flight 811. They really pushed the NTSB to search for the cargo door because they didn't buy the theory in the first report that human error was to blame for the cargo door malfunction. A university scholarship was set up by Boeing and United Airlines in the name of Lee Campbell, Susan and Kevin's son. 
So how did this flight, United Flight 811, make flying safer today? The FAA required all 747s to switch to steel locking sectors within 30 days. So that whole 18 to 24 month window that they originally set was changed to 30 days. Outward hinging cargo doors needed to have their locking mechanisms redesigned. They required new positive indicators to confirm that the latch cams and locking sectors were indeed in place. They also just generally recommended that outward hinging cargo doors be eventually replaced by inward hinging cargo doors. So we learned that our cargo door locking mechanism for the 747s at the time was flawed, that the design was bad, and now flying is safer because of what we learned from Flight 811 and the redesign of the cargo door. Today we are joined by Tom Van Beveren, a passenger on board United Flight 811. Thanks for joining the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so let's start out. Why, why first, why were you on the plane? Were you coming from LA? Obviously you were going to New Zealand or Australia. What was the occasion? Uh, uh, I was married to a New Zealand woman and I was on my way to one of her middle sister's wedding. Uh, she had gone down a week prior and, um, I was going down there to be at the wedding with her. Was it just like any other flight when you were board, boarding the flight? Did you? Um, pretty much. Being married to a Kiwi, it means that we went down at least once a year. So I was used to get, you know, going on that, that flight. Yeah. Did you always and, fly United or did you fly different? Uh, we, yeah, you know, both of us always flew United because we got miles. And, and my wife was a pharmaceutical rep, so she, had, she always had lots of mileage. So, you know, we always got up upgraded and stuff like that which was nice yeah that does sound nice did you spend spend any time in hawaii or was that just a stopover um you know in those days uh the planes could not make it nonstop from here to auckland Uh they so so they either stopped in hawaii or they stopped in tahiti for fuel Ah. um you know, new, new, uh, newer planes, not so much. They don't have that problem now. But, yeah. but in, in fact, the, the 747 that I was on, it, it was actually the third 747 ever built. Oh man. And, and at the time of the accident, it was already over 20 years old. Yeah. I read that. Did, so when you were in Hawaii, you were just there for a short period of time, just at the airport. Just right. Uh, you know, you're on an inter international flight. So, you know, even though they, they allowed us off off of the airplane there. Uh, you weren't allowed to go anywhere. You know, you had to stay in, in one confined little, little little area. So I didn't even get off that that trip. You know, I was like used to it. Yeah. So you were in the airport for a little bit. You board United Flight Eight Eleven, and uh, where were you seated on the flight? I was sitting in row twenty three C, which was on the other side of the airplane, but about three three rows back. And yeah, I could see everything. So the flight taxis takes off. Do you go to sleep? Are you reading a book? What's going on? Um, actually, I was sitting there filling out my customs form, so when I landed in Auckland, I could get right off and go through customs and gone. Mm-hmm. You know. So the, you're sitting there filling out this custom form. All of a sudden, right. this massive explosive decompression happens. What What's the first thoughts that are going through your mind? I mean, what was it like in the cabin? Well, the first thing that happened, there was just a very loud bang, kind of like a boom, you know, boom. Mm-hmm. And then it went, it, it just went silent. 
then the lights in the cabin went went off. All of a sudden, there was just, you know, it was like a tornado starting, just a, a large wind noise that's swirling, swirling. Everything that wasn't bolted down, especially, you know, a, a lot of things even where I was sitting that were bolted to the wall and stuff, it all went out the side of the airplane, and it all got sucked, sucked out. Mm-hmm. So the area that I was sitting in was, you know, the 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 walls were bare of aluminum. You could see the people's feet who were sitting up in the top bubble. You know, mm-hmm. um, you could see their feet dangling. You could see wiring, and you know, and a big hole in the side of the airplane. You could see the you could see the moon. You could see the water glistening. Oh man. Yeah, and, and it was extremely noisy and rough. Yeah, was your okay. was your thought process? I mean, imagine that immediately. You're probably not thinking anything. You're just observing everything that's going on. But were you? Well, no. You, you know, I I'm like tall, so I got hit by a lot of stuff going out of the airplane. You know, because you know, in my head, mm-hmm. I don't think you know. I don't think it really bothered me, but the. The very first thing that ran through my mind was, "Oh my God, my brand new Walkman's gonna get it. Is going to get wet." You know? <laughs> so, seriously, it never dawned on me that I was gonna die or yeah. I could die. You know, yeah, it was like just, just oh, okay, yeah, we're gonna, yeah, I might, I might have to go swimming. You know, okay, cool. <laughs> That's you know? a good. I hope I have that composure if I'm ever in a similar situation. Well, yeah. So uh, you actually, I guess, handled it pretty well. You didn't feel any kind of panicky thoughts, or uh, it felt um, kind of... during the uh, during the flight. It was, you know, I I think I was fine. I was a Boy Scout. It sounds really stupid, but I was a Boy Scout for a long, long time. So I knew what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I knew how to help people put their life vests on. To, there was one woman, she was running through the cabin. She had blood on her. She was wearing a white outfit. And me and another guy basically had to tackle her to get her to sit down because we were afraid she was going out the side. You know? Yeah. You know, hey, you got a, you, you got an airplane with a gigantic hole in the side. And the two, the, the two engines on the, on, on the right wing are both on fire. The tail's damaged. The plane's not flying right. You know? Yeah. Hey, sit down. Man. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, and this is my opinion, but I've read a lot of stuff on this stuff, and I read all of the heroic crap from the stewardess. They didn't do anything. They just sat there. They mm-hmm. strapped down, and they pulled themselves tight, and they never moved. We never had one announcement or or anything until yeah. about a minute before we touched down. Sounds like you were a perfect guy to have on the plane. It seems like you kept your composure and you yeah. uh, kept yeah. calm. Oh, oh, and you oh, and, you yeah. also were a testament to why Boy Scouts is a good thing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I was prepared. I I knew what to do when the when we finally got on the on the ground. The captain, his name was Cronin. Okay, this was mm-hmm. his second to last flight. Yeah, his, I read that. His last flight was supposed to be the flight home, which it was. Mm-hmm. But but uh, in fact, he he told me that if we had if he had done what they told him to do in the manual for on disaster stuff, which was drop the wheels. Yeah, he said we would that we 
we would never have made it back because we didn't. He wasn't having any problems scrubbing speed off. He was having enough problem just getting the plane to go straight. Yeah, they he, broke protocol to like get to Honolulu. Right. Otherwise, that, they'd end up in the ocean. That that that's right. He was a World War II fighter pilot. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he was flying by the seat of his pants up there. The the co-pilot, we saw him come come down the stairs. You know, from the you know from the cockpit in a seven forty seven is upstairs. Mm-hmm. So, and we saw him come down, and he took a look around. He he was like white as a ghost, and went back back up. Okay? Yeah. Um, about a minute before we landed, um, we got the only uh, announcement was that we're going to land. Assume the crash position. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you know, everybody bent down, covered their heads. Plan landed, great landing. Seriously, was one of the smoothest landings I ever had. And you know, and landings don't bother me. So yeah. He, so the plane came down. We tacked. We went for a long, long time because he 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 said. Well, the captain told us later that he was afraid that if he tapped the brakes too soon, the plane would have collapsed. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know there, there's like a twenty by thirty foot hole. That that's on the side of the airplane there. Yeah. You know, it's, hey, but we made it down. He, the captain finally made his second uh, uh, announcement. Was every, everybody get up and get out? Mm-hmm. So so I stood up, walked to the walked to the door, opened the door, went down the slide, and then I stood down at the bottom of the, of the slide to help people get out. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you know, because people are going down, and, and and it was what was really funny. The girl that was sitting next to me um, was a little Australian girl, and I'm always kind of like a kidder. So during uh, during the safety presentation before we took off, United was showing a video, mm-hmm. you know, and all these happy people, and they and they showed the door open. They showed these people smiling as they jumped out of the side of the airplane and on to the slide. And, and during that thing, I guess I had told her, you know, that looks like a lot of fun. I would like to try that someday. Okay. so when, <laughs> You didn't know 30 minutes later you'd be doing it. Yeah. So when she came down the slide, she, she jumps up and she starts hitting me. What the hell? What's, what's going on? You know, she, oh, you had to say that about the slide, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> hey, I had no control. She was like, you jinxed us. Yeah, yeah, really. But mm-hmm. hey, it was fun. So, did you? Know. you uh, d- what do was your? So you get off the slide. You uh, probably were checked out by emergency services. Did you fly? Uh, continue on eventually to New Zealand. Yeah, I, had, I yeah, I had to. I had I had no choice. I was <laughs> supposed to be at this wedding. I was. You're I like was I got a wedding, wedding to party. go to. You know, hey, you know. <laughs> did how how long did you have to stay in Hawaii after that? Um. We were there for seven, uh, 17 hours. 17 hours. So when you get on the next plane, did you? <laughs> and and they had no place to take us because uh, apparently all of of uh, of uh, Wahoo was booked. Mm-hmm. So there were so there were no places to put us in rooms or anything. They kept us in this little do- departure lounge. Okay, staring right out at the airplane that's sitting out there, you know. And we're all looking at this thing, and, and the only time that I was ever bugged about anything was about two hours afterwards, I was sitting on the floor and it suddenly dawned on me that, Hey, I could have died 
and I had no control over it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I was racing motorcycles and stuff at that time, and and there were times when, when I almost died, but it was at my own hands, so I was kind of used to it, you know? Yeah. This, this was the only thing that ever bothered me. So it was hey, the fact that you I, were going to die and that was going to be a, some well, moment like that, that was out I, of your control. I, I could have died. I, I could have been one of the nine people that went out the side. You know? Yeah. Hey. No, definitely. I mean, well, have you, do you think about this flight often or is it just not really no, something that no, happens? No. You know what? Uh, in fact, you know, I, uh, my, my ex-wife and I, continued to go there at least once a year for years and years afterwards mm-hmm. and it and it never bothered me it, hey it's just something you have to do in fact if people were coming down there with us they always wanted to make sure they were on the same flight as me because be because the odds of it happening to me again are astronomical now you know yeah so hey, hey, that's going to be a pretty safe flight. Tom's on it. You know? Yeah, like, cool. and if anything that. goes on, uh, Tom's a Boy Scout, and he's going to, you know, be yeah. the, he's going to be the voice of reason. Right. No, yeah, that's I, so you I you you, you didn't have it negatively impact you. You didn't have to. You didn't no. have anxiety about flying. Seventeen hours later, you hopped on another flight, and you're like, time yeah. to time to do this. It, it, yeah, and in fact, they had no planes. They had to bring up a plane from from Chicago that was part of the long wait mm-hmm. okay and in fact they had had a bomb threat on that flight on flight so, 811 so when we landed there were like 50 FBI agents all wearing the same Hawaiian shirt and they came in and they and they grilled it absolutely every one of us because they thought and, flight 811 was a bomb be, initially right Right, they right because that's what the co-pilot had reported that it, that they had an explosion, and the first thing they thought about was bomb. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, explosive decompression was something that hadn't been experienced up until that time. Okay, and mm-hmm. in fact, the the big question was a couple of people would ask me, uh, pilots um, would ask me, hey. Did you see a cloud form? And yes, there was a cloud inside of the, you know, the moisture differences. Boom, you had a cloud form. And then that went out. You know, that got sucked out right before it got very, very windy. So, yes. Yeah, it's just stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it sounds like you uh, handled everything very well. You processed I, it well. You know, hey, it's just something that happened, you know. Yeah, did you have any injuries from the, you said you were no, hit by stuff, no, just kind of superficial no. scratches here and there? Yeah, but you know nothing that uh, that needed medical care. Um, yeah, I had a roll of a roll of film that I had taken during the accident stuff going on. You know, up in the air that the FBI confiscated. In fact, I've seen some of my photos on the FBI in, in investigations mm-hmm. and, and 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 stuff. I I actually had that film sold to the Hawaii affiliate of C- of CBS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want to hear about that, that's really an interesting story too. So. Yeah. No t- okay. Um, when I got off the plane, my first thought was, I've got to get to a phone and call and call my mom because my mom is an early riser. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time we got uh, back to who. 
you know, back to Honolulu, it was like three in the morning there. So it's six in the morning here. Yeah. Okay. My, I know my mom is up. She, she's, she's always watches the, the news. So I was one of the lucky few that got to the, that got to talk on a phone. So I called my mom. Hey mom, I'm fine. The, the reason I was really concerned about doing this is my dad died in November of 88. My little brother died in January of 89 and here it's February and her mm-hmm. oldest son just, just died. I wanted her oh, to know that God. I was fine. Yeah. So I call, Hey mom, don't worry about me. Yes. I was on that flight. Everything's fine. She says, what flight? Well, the flight going to New Zealand that killed nine people and all again. Mm-hmm. So she started, started looking. She says, there's nothing on this. So I said, call my cousin, Don. He works at CBS news. Yeah. Have him check. So she called him, and apparently they checked. They said, nope, there's nothing on there. So they called their Honolulu branch. Nope, nothing. So so technically my mom alerted CBS of something that was going on. And, and so they came and they interviewed her, and they put a, a, a picture of, of my wedding you know, with me and my ex on the on the Channel Two News, and they came and interviewed her, and then they interviewed me when I got home and stuff. But yeah, but but we were like the first people to actually tell them that there was a problem there. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So that was kind of cool. So you no, know. you broke that. You broke the news to CBS, right? And yeah, yeah. So they were the first ones there, and they came looking for me there, and. You know, so they so they did a quick interview before the FBI said, "Oh, you can't talk to anybody." Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Well, oh, I thought this was America, but okay, you know. But they said, "Can we have your film?" And so I said, "Yes." And I ha- as I'm handing the guy from CBS the film, the FBI guy grabs it and he says, "Oh, we're going to confiscate that." Yeah. Okay. You know. Wow. Seriously, uh, be, because I didn't get off of the airplane in Honolulu while they were refueling, mm-hmm. they grilled me. The, you know, the FBI. The most of the interviews were taken like at like twenty to thirty minutes. They had me for at least an hour and a half. They made me feel like I did it. Mm-hmm. Seriously, that's how. And everybody that I talked to, they all said, "Yeah, they were treating everybody like you were the one that actually caused this problem." Yeah, I guess hey, that's you know kind what? of their goal. Is to it's the same when you like cross the border and you talk to a border agent. <coughs> their goal is to right. make you nervous, and if you did something right. wrong, maybe you'll show them right. something. So right. Well, hey, and you know it's whatever. It's all water underneath <laughs> the bridge. Well, so there's one photo that I have that shows looking from the outside in to the business section there. Yeah. And you'll, and if you look at the very right side of the photo, there's you, you see uh, that, that business class armrest is bent. Okay. Mm-hmm. The guy that was sitting in that guy, that was the ninth guy out. Okay. His seat was, was fine, but he had unbuckled his seatbelt as soon as the wheels lift, you know, lifted off. Yeah. He just popped his seatbelt loose and, there was enough suction that it took that guy out of the side of the plane and bent that armrest. And those armrests were like nine inches wide or something, you know, the, yeah. you know, in the older business class section, that was a really substantial piece of hardware there. And, and that guy actually bent that thing going out. So, so the violence of 
the suction of that thing was amazing. Like I said, the whole interior of the airplane where I was sitting was sucked out. Yeah. It was gone. It's a good yeah. uh, good testament to why you should keep your seatbelt on at all times. Right. Oh, there's a lot of other things, too. If you ever want to know st- stuff about it, it, it's like I found out so much stuff. It's like never take your shoe, your shoes off, okay? Because, like, when we went out the side of the airplane, when we were down on the bottom, I was standing in uh, in uh, jet jet fuel. Mm-hmm. Be- you know, because that guy was... You know, we had just taken off from Ho- Ho- Hawaii. He had a full load of fuel, a full load of passengers. That plane was heavy. Yeah. Okay. And he was dumping fuel as fast as he could. He said um, he had a full left on both engines on the left side, full on, full left everything, and we're making a slow turn to the right. Okay. Yeah. He- all of the computer models said that we should never have made it back here. But so that good old Captain Captain Cronin was smart, man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If it wasn't for him, I probably would have been dead, and then I wouldn't be talking to you. See? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but, but it, that also changed my life in a lot of ways because it suddenly dawned on me that I could have died, and so you know what? I'm going to do everything that I want to do when I get a chance to do it, so, and don't put put things off so I, I you know i don't put things off now if and if something comes up that i want to do i just go in and do it i don't well i can wait till later because i i could die at any time you know that kind no of i think that's a great it. philosophy to have i think i don't remember who it was is it picasso some <coughs> artist had a quote yeah. that said leave until tomorrow which you don't mind having died never done that's right so. See, and that does make a lot of sense. Okay, so yeah, just do what you want. You know, hey, with my dad and my brother dying right before this, I was just glad that I got to my mom. Yeah. Okay? Shoot, my mom is still living. She's eighty-six. She's almost eighty-seven now. So. Mm-hmm. Yep, she still works at St. Joseph's Hospital. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. she sounds like a inner uh, hardworking lady. Still working yeah. at eighty-six years old. She's been volunteering there for 54 years. Wow. Yeah, there's nobody at St. Joseph's. If you ever go to the gift shop, just ask for Jackie. She's the friendliest person you'll ever talk talk to. Oh, okay. well, she... Everybody. I, I have met people at the Grand Canyon that I, I don't know how we got talking about St. Joseph's. Oh, do you know Jackie in the gift shop? Yeah, she's my mom. You know? <laughs> Holy crap! Everybody knows her. My, yeah. oh, my mom is. Oh, my my mom is a nice lady. So sounds like it's in the blood. She taught you how to take care well, of people. So I, yeah, when things start right. hitting uh, the fan, you jumped up and just start taking care of people. Then it's part of your uh, DNA. Yep. It sounds like you uh, process everything pretty good. It sounds like you're a reliable passenger, a f- fellow passenger. I want to be on planes with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> Anything goes down, you're gonna start taking pictures and start taking hey, care of the wounded. And um, I, I have a couple of friends that fly that were captains for United Airlines at that time, and they should take me down to the training center and put me in an actual 747 flight trainer. Mm-hmm. Things like five stories tall. You walk across a bridge. It's, it's, it's like the ultimate video game, and. I got to fly that thing multiple times. That sounds cool. Right. I actually know in my head I can land a 747, <laughs> which, you know, you know, they don't even really do anymore. But in, you know, in my head, hey, no more. There's nothing that I can't, can't, 
can't do about this problem. See, you know, yeah. I can actually, hey, I could land a 747. Cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. I don't think a lot of people can yeah. say that. Yeah. Well, it, it's something that I get, hey, I, it, in my, in my mind, it made me feel a lot more comfortable, you know? That's good. I mean, I feel like that's that's part of why I've done the podcast and what my attraction to the podcast was is I get nervous on flights and the more I'm learning, uh, the more the, that those nerves are going away and it's kind of like I the more I learn about how a plane flies through the air and sure. the more I learn about why crashes happen and how we made, you know, updates to our systems because of them, it, it makes me feel more comfortable. Right. Well, thanks again, Tom, for joining us today. I'm um, happy that you were there to take care of people, and I'm happy that you were able to share your story with us today. Oh, sure. Thanks. Thanks again to Tom for joining us today. He was a pleasure to talk to. Um, There's a couple more tidbits I have about Flight 811. Uh, The captain of Flight 811, David Cronin, died on Monday, October 4th, 2010, at age 81 in his home in Minden, Nevada. After his retirement from United, he flew in air shows in Reno, Nevada. On December 13th, 2007, the FAA changed the mandatory retirement age to 65, extending it five years. Captain uh, David Cronin's performance on United Flight 811 was one example cited as to why the age limit should be extended for another five years. If you have capable and super experienced pilots out there, doesn't make a lot of sense to force them out of the cockpit if they're still very good at their jobs. Personally, I'm happy that David Cronin was in charge that night. He saved a lot of lives. Apparently did such a good job that he changed FAA rules, extending the retirement age for five years. First Officer Slater was recently interviewed in New York Magazine about United Flight 811, and he commented, A lot of pilots say, God, I'm glad that was you and not me. But you know what? We train and practice all sorts of emergency procedures our entire career. To take that final test, the big test, and pass it, I wouldn't trade that. I think a lot of guys who fly planes would love to take the big test and find out if they could pass it. I was at a restaurant in Denver a while back, and one of the guys from that flight, a lawyer, was having dinner with a friend. I hear this guy yell, Slater, Slater! And he jumps up and he's walking through the restaurant yelling, This guy saved my life! And he turns to the waiter and says, whatever he wants, give it to him. Send the check to me. I was embarrassed, but yeah, sure, it made me happy. I just thought that was a nice story. The damaged plane of Flight 811 was eventually repaired and was returned to service with United Airlines in 1990. In 1997, the plane was sold to Air Dabia. And in 2001, it was eventually retired and sold for parts. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. Uh, thanks to all of you out there that have been listening, going to our Twitter page, which is at Plane Crash Pod. You can email us at Plane Crash Podcast at Gmail. And if you have a moment and you can leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate it. I want to thank Tom. I want to thank Tess Andrade for uh, her help with producing the podcast. And I hope you all are having a great week. I hope you're working hard at whatever you've chosen to do in life. And I hope you reward yourself with a trip somewhere cool really soon. I hope you get on uh, line and book some tickets tonight and go somewhere to a beach, go hiking in the mountains, do something cool, enjoy life. I will talk to you all very soon. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.